0: Well, good morning. Oh. Wow. Good morning, everyone. That was the microphone. I don't know where that came from. It's good to be together this morning. Always wonderful to worship the Lord together. Always wonderful to take communion together. And now we are confident that as we look to him through his word, that he's going to speak to our hearts through his word. So let's just join our hearts together. Uh, asking the Lord to speak to us. Heavenly Father, we just want to come into your presence uh, to hear your word, just acknowledging that you are such an amazingly gracious and good God, that you are a God that desires to make yourself known to us. You desire to reveal yourself to us, Lord, and you do it in ways and in words that we can understand, and we just want to thank you for that. Father, the more that we see you, the more amazed and joyful we become. As we come to know you better, know your character better, reflect on what you have done for your people, what you have done for us. We just are amazed with worship, with adoration, with praise. The songs that we were singing and lifting up our hands and whatever it was that we used as an expression of worship to you, we just want to thank you. And that is in response to you showing us showing us who you are, showing us what you have done. And we just want to continue, Lord God, continue in that spirit and attitude of worship. And Father, I just pray right now that as we look to you through the book of Exodus, that you would be speaking to us, that you would be speaking to our hearts, Lord God. As we've prayed so many times, we will pray it again right now. Yours is the voice that we need to hear. We need to know, Lord God, what you are saying. We need to know, Lord, what you are doing. Ultimately, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters, Lord God. And so now we want to choose the better portion. We want to choose that portion, Lord Jesus, where we sit at your feet. And when we hear what you want to teach us today father i just want to thank you so much for the incredible incredible story of the exodus as we have been reading together as a congregation the opening chapters of this book what an amazing thing that you did for your people and even now as we reflect on just a small portion of that we pray that your spirit would be stirring in us that your spirit would be renewing us, that your spirit would be reviving us and putting in us, Lord, even greater joy, even greater excitement about all that you have done. And finally, Lord, and of course, we pray for your wisdom. Because as we come to your word, Lord God, you remind us that we cannot understand it apart from you. And so we pray that you would give us that wisdom, that wisdom that begins by fearing you, that wisdom that begins by acknowledging you. Give us that wisdom. And as we read together, may we come to know you better. And Jesus, it is in your name and for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for praying with me. We have been reading through the book of Exodus. And for those of you who have been participating in that, you probably realize that today is Exodus chapter 14 in the schedule that we are following. If you are unaware of the schedule, there are sheets in the back that have the schedule printed on it. Or if you would like to receive it via electronic, you can check out our website, uh, lwcphilly.church. Carl assures me that all of those things are on the website. So please avail yourself of the excellent job that Carl has done Uh, putting the website together. And we are actually going to read together today, Exodus chapter 14. Uh, For those of you who have been reading along, I imagine that you have just been incredibly compelled once again by the amazing account of the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. It's just, it's a gripping, exciting story of God's people in an incredibly awful situation, And God coming through. And God coming through. And just how God was absolutely determined to bring glory to himself. And we will see that even more in what we will read together today. He was absolutely determined to bring glory to himself. And that is what all of creation is going to do for all of eternity. Give glory to him. Bring glory to him. Some of creation is doing that willingly and joyfully right now. Others are a little oblivious to it. But we know that what is coming is all of creation for all eternity giving glory to God. That's where we're going. And that's where the entire cosmos is going. And Exodus is... These opening chapters of Exodus were just the smallest little glimpse into what our God is able to do and how our God is able to receive glory so deservedly to himself. As Ephraim reminded us earlier last week, Carl was preaching and really focused on the aspect of Israel being in slavery, Israel being in bondage, and God setting them free. And yet, how difficult it was for them to truly embrace that freedom that was theirs. How easy it was for them to continue to think as slaves, to continue to act like slaves, to continue to respond like slaves. And it was a very excellent word that Carl gave us, and certainly an incredibly applicable theme for us today. Jesus Christ has set us free and yet in many ways we continue to live as those who are in bondage and may the lord continue to give us a greater understanding of what he has done and give us a greater ability to walk in that freedom that he has purchased for us so anyways acts excuse me acts exodus chapter 14 what we're going to do is we're going to read roughly the first part of the chapter spend a little bit of time talking about that And then read the second half of the chapter and spend some time talking about that. There's so much in Exodus 14, so we're not going to have time, of course, to cover all of it. But just a couple of things that were really speaking to my heart as I was reading this chapter a few days ago. So Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 14 to start. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near pi ha between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite baal zephon Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the peoples had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they had camped by the sea near Pi Hahiroth opposite Baal Zephon as Pharaoh approached the Israelites as Pharaoh approached the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them they were afraid and cried out to the Lord they said to Moses was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see. The deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still." Let's pause here and just spend a little bit of time talking about a couple of the things that we just read. Many of you recall that by chapter 14 The ten plagues with which the Lord devastated the nation of Egypt have come to conclusion, culminating in the death of the firstborn. And finally, after that most devastating of all the ten plagues, Pharaoh told Moses and the Israelites, You are free to go. You are free to go and worship the Lord your God. So they have started their way out. They are making their way out of Egypt. They are making their way out of bondage. And remember, the Lord so moved on the hearts of the Egyptians that Israel plundered the Egyptians on the way out. And it says they asked their neighbors for silver and gold and fine garments, and the Egyptians happily gave it to the Israelites so that they could be rid of them and be gone. And so this nation of slaves didn't leave the land of slavery impoverished. In fact, they left the land incredibly wealthy having plundered the Egyptians. But now they are making their way. And previously, God had said, my people need to go a three days journey into the wilderness to make sacrifices and to worship me. It was not clear exactly where they were going to go to the Israelites. Of course, Moses was told in his encounter at the burning bush that ultimately they would make their way to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. But we don't know exactly the course that the Israelites were taking. The specific place names that are given to us here and given to us in the previous chapter, they are unknown to us. We have no clear certainty as to where in Egypt or where in the wilderness outside of Egypt these specific places were. But what is clear is that it seemed as if the Israelites were wandering around In confusion. It seems like they started out in one direction and then started to head in a different direction. So it looked to outward appearance as if they didn't really know for sure where they were going. But what is important for us to understand initially in that is they were following the Lord. They were following the Lord. Later in this chapter, in a little bit, we're going to read that there was a pillar of cloud by day and there was a column of fire by night that was the very presence of the Lord that was specifically leading the nation of Israel, showing them exactly where to go. And this presence, in fact, would be with them in that way throughout the entire 40 years that the nation would spend in the wilderness. So it's important for us to understand that as Israel seemed to be apparently wandering aimlessly, somewhat confusedly in the region of desert or wilderness right outside of Egypt, in fact, they were following exactly where the Lord wanted them to go. Now, what we see, of course, is Pharaoh is aware of the nation's movements. They haven't gotten far. This is probably only about the third day since they left Egypt, so they haven't gotten far, and so certainly folks are reporting back to Pharaoh where the Israelites were going. And as this report comes to Pharaoh's ear, he believes what he sees and he believes the report that he hears, that Israel doesn't know what they're doing. That Israel is out there just aimlessly wandering and ultimately ensnaring themselves in the desert. And this is how chapter 14 opens up, with the nation of Israel following God Completely and totally in terms of going physically where that cloud and where that fire are going. Outwardly appearing as if they are confused and not sure what they're doing. And ultimately, that impression penetrating Pharaoh's heart and convincing him that they don't know what they're doing. Now, of course, even as we're going over these details, many of us may see the connection for us today. Hopefully, all of us are endeavoring to follow the Lord. Hopefully, every one of us is trying to live each day doing, going, following where He is leading us. If you are not doing that, you have an opportunity to start today. If you haven't done that up to this point, today is a great day to start But for those of us who have been trying to do this, that is our desire when we wake up in the morning. That is our desire to do what the Lord is asking of us, to go where the Lord is leading us, to follow His direction, to allow Him to be Lord of our lives. And we have to trust that the Lord knows what He's doing. We don't always have a full understanding and a clear picture, so we trust that he does. We also realize that as the world looks at us, as the unbelieving world looks at us, trying to follow the Lord, trying to do what the Lord asks of us, to many in the world, we look hopelessly confused. We look like kind of idiotic people to them. We look like we're living a foolish life, following a foolish course that makes no sense to them. Very much the same way that Pharaoh reacted to the Lord leading Israel those opening days in the desert. And so we shouldn't be surprised, as followers of Jesus, when the world looks at us with scorn, when the world looks at us with derision, with condescension, When the world looks at us and says, you guys are confused. Why are you living the way you're living? Why are you giving up the things you're giving up? Why are you doing the things you're doing? We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Because following Jesus ultimately will never make sense to this world. Not until blind eyes are open. Not until folks in darkness are brought into light. Until that happens our determination, our desire to live a life following Jesus will never make sense to them. It never will. Now certainly, the Lord gives us opportunity to share with the unbelieving world, to invite them to consider this life that looks like confusion and aimless wandering. That is part of the incredible blessing that we have, is to not keep this incredible life to ourselves, but to offer to those in the world the opportunity to come live this foolish life with us, to come live this life of apparent confusion with us. Because, of course, what we understand is there's no confusion at all. Because of the grace of Jesus Christ that has been given to us, we are the ones that see more clearly than anyone in the world. And we don't say that with pride. We don't say that with arrogance. We don't say that patting ourselves on the back. Too many times as the church begins to embrace this truth, we embrace it with an incredible amount of pride and arrogance. And that actually frequently turns the world off. We should absolutely embrace this attitude of knowing that Christ has given us a clarity. Christ has given us a direction. Christ has removed confusion. But should we never, ever, ever share that with arrogance? But with humility as we as we ask the Lord, Lord, why me? Why would you reveal yourself to me? Why would you make yourself known to me? Why would you give me that clarity? Why would you give me that certainty? Why would you love me that much? That's how we share this with the world. Not with arrogance. Not with pride. But with awestruck wonder at a God who is so good and a God who is so loving that he would reveal himself to me. That he would make himself known to us. And he would remove that confusion. He would remove all of that uncertainty that the unbelieving world is mired in. And so as Exodus chapter 14 begins, it really is a commentary on life today. As we are endeavoring to follow the Lord, don't be surprised when the unbelieving world looks at us and calls us foolish. When the unbelieving world looks at us and says, wow, what are they doing? When the unbelieving world looks at us and calls us confused. There was a song that I loved many, many, many years ago that says, I'd rather be a fool in the eyes of man than a fool in the eyes of God. When I stand before the Lord on judgment day, I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear him say, Dave, why didn't you get it? Why didn't you see? Let the world heat that accusation on us now. Let the world point that condemning finger at us now. Let the Lord mock and deride us now. Because a day is coming when we will stand before the Lord And the only opinion that matters and the only judgment that matter will be his. And if we've done everything we can to live our life for him, he will not say foolish. He will not say waste of time. He will say well done. Well done. There's something that crops up in the book of Exodus. There's something that crops up in the verses that we just read together, that for many of us is a little challenging. We see it in verse 4, as the Lord is speaking to Moses. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then in verse 8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now for a lot of us, that's a pretty challenging declaration that the Lord makes. He doesn't just say it these two times in verse 14. He says it repeatedly throughout the opening chapters. In fact, when he's appearing to Moses at the burning bush, he says, look, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. You're going to go to him just like I asked you. And you're going to say, let my people go. And I'm going to harden his heart. Now, for a lot of us, that's a little tough for us. I remember years ago reading Romans chapter 9 and wishing that those verses were not in my Bible. Because basically Paul says, in case you missed it in Exodus, I'm going to make sure you didn't. And if you hadn't read Romans 9 recently, if you're not familiar what I'm talking about, you can read that this afternoon. But the Apostle Paul says, look, basically, if you didn't catch what the Lord was saying, and what the Lord was doing with Pharaoh and Pharaoh's heart in Exodus, I'm going to make it unmistakably clear to you. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God chose Jacob over Esau before they were even born. God chose Isaac over Ishmael simply because he wanted to. And at the end of the discussion in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, The Lord has mercy on those whom he wills to have mercy, and he hardens those whom he wills to harden. Now, when God declares something like that, really very simply for me, I feel like we have two choices. We can either accept what the word of God declares. We can either accept God on his terms, whether we agree with it, whether we like it, whether that's what we want to hear or not. Or we can try to create God into what we want him to be. We can try to make God into who we want him to be. We can try to soften what we perceive as some of his rougher edges. We can try to gloss over some of the more challenging truth. Every single one of us has that choice regularly as we read the word of God. Because not one of us is so perfectly sanctified that there isn't going to be something or many things in the word of God that initially are hard for us or initially are offensive to us. Or initially don't sit right with us. We're just not that sanctified. We need the word of God to change us. We need the word of God to soften our sharp edges. We need the word of God to make us into his image. Not for us to try to make him into what we want him to be. When there's things in the word that are hard or difficult or theologically offensive to us. So I'm not going to try to explain away or soften the declaration that the Lord makes in Exodus 14. He says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And he did. And Paul says he did it because he wanted to. He did it because he could. And he did it because he wanted to. That's basically the gist of Romans chapter 9. And you know what the Apostle Paul says? If you have a problem with that, who are you the lump of clay to tell the potter what he should do with you? You know, I feel like there is a part of us out of mercy and out of compassion that tries to soften God, that tries to take these rough edges off, but we're doing God no favors when we do that. We are doing God no favors when we do that. We're not saving him. We're not helping him. In fact, we're hurting the cause of the gospel. We are hurting the cause of the gospel when we choose not to accept the entirety of this as the Lord has given it to us, when we choose to tinker with it and try to reinterpret it and try to re-understand it and try to remove some things or de-emphasize some things, we are doing God no favors. And we are certainly not helping the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We bow the knee to him. He does not bow his knee to us. And I absolutely have no problem standing up here and saying there are things in the word of God that are hard for me. There are things in the word of God that are hard for me to accept. I don't feel like that dishonors God. I feel like that makes it just blatantly clear that I'm not where I should be yet. I'm not as sanctified as I should be yet. I'm not as in line with God and his truth as I should be yet. But that's where I want to be. And I endeavor never to try to twist this to make God into what I want him to be. I try to completely and totally accept him for who he reveals himself to be. So this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, maybe for some of us it's really challenging, maybe for others of us it's not challenging at all. But the incredible truth that lies behind it is one that we all embrace. God is in control. God is in control. The fancy word that we use for that is God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God. That's a wonderful word. The sovereignty of God. Because what it means is that God is God and there is no other. And God is in absolute control of every atom of his universe all of the time. All of the time. Period. No argument. No discussion. Now, does everything that we see going on around us make sense to us? Of course not. Do we understand the full counsel of God all of the time? Of course not. We are not privy to that, and that's okay. But the one thing that we can be absolutely sure of is that God is always in complete control. He never is wondering, fretting, worried, confused, Having things spin beyond his grasp. He is absolutely in complete control. When Pharaoh is doing everything in his power to destroy the people of God, the heart of Pharaoh is still in God's hands. And as Proverbs says, he will twist it like a watercourse in the way that it should go. Now, whatever theological difficulties we may have with that, I hope more than that. We have incredible comfort and insurance. The God that we know, the God that we serve, the God that we love, the God that we trust, he's still got this thing. He still has it all under his control. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can intimidate him. Nothing can undermine him. Nothing can surprise him. Nothing can thwart him. Nothing can threaten him. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And that's what we should take away from that incredibly powerful declaration. Because the heart of Pharaoh, the whole time, was in the hand of the Lord. And the Lord turned it like a little water course in the direction that he chose, in the direction that He chose. So embrace that. Wrestle with Romans 9. Wrestle with God hardening of the heart. Do that. Don't duck that. Don't hide from that. Embrace what God reveals about himself. But as you do that, embrace the far more powerful, applicable truth that God is in complete control. And he always is. No matter what we see around us, no matter what is going on around us, God is still God of his universe, and that will never change. That will never, ever change. Let's look at verse 10 a bit more carefully, because this is one of these verses that really spoke to me as I was looking at this. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. And as they looked up, what did they see? Well, they saw the Egyptian army coming after them. They thought they had left Egypt behind. They thought they had left Pharaoh behind. They thought they had left the Egyptian army behind. They thought they were on their way. And now, instead, as they look up and look behind them, the most powerful army in the ancient world at that time is hot on their heels. And I'm sure what was running through their mind is, wow, this is not what we expected. I thought the Lord was bringing us out of this. I thought we were leaving this behind. Why is Pharaoh coming after us? Why is the army of Egypt coming after us? Why? And how often in our own Christian life do we have a tremendous victory and yet, The very next day or maybe two days later or three days later, we look over our shoulder and there's the enemy army coming right after us. And we're thinking to ourselves, wait a second, Lord, I thought we dealt with this. I thought we were done with this. I thought the death of the firstborn in the land of Egypt settled this once and for all. But as the Israelites were seeing, it had not. And so they looked up, verse 10, they looked up. And as they saw this incredibly powerful army marching behind them, it says they were afraid. They were afraid. And again, there are so many circumstances in this life that inspire fear, that are not at all comforting, assuring, easy circumstances. We don't have to look far. We don't have to look far around us to see circumstances that are like the army of Egypt coming right after the nation of Israel. And it's not unusual for us, even as the people of God, to be afraid, to look at the natural circumstance and be afraid. But look at what fear leads to. In verse 11, it says, they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So what does this fear immediately give way to? Discouragement. Discouragement. And what does discouragement immediately give way to? complaining. God, Moses, didn't we know better than you? Didn't we know better than you? Didn't we say when we were still in slavery in Egypt, we would much rather remain slaves than be free and follow you? Well, is that really what Israel said? Is that really what Israel said? When they were in bondage, as Carl reminded us, for 430 years in Egypt, is that really what they said? Did they cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, we're so content being slaves. We're so happy being slaves. Please don't do anything about this. Please don't lead us out. There's plenty of graves here for us to be buried in. Don't lead us out into the desert. Don't lead us out of captivity. Is that, in fact, what Israel cried out to the Lord? No, of course not. So fear gives way to discouragement. Discouragement gives way to complaining. And complaining gives way to reinventing the past. How many of us do that regularly? Discouragement, complaining, reinventing the past. Well, praise God that we have the word of God to anchor us. And we can go back and look at the end of Exodus chapter 2. And what it actually says is that the nation of Israel was crying out to God to deliver them. And it says that God heard them. And God had concern for them. And God determined to do something. That's what they were crying in Egypt. They weren't saying, leave us here. They weren't saying, we want to remain here. We want to remain in bondage. In fact, they were saying exactly the opposite. But we can see just how overwhelming natural circumstance can be. Because the natural circumstance was they had an army behind them. And of course, as we know, they had the Red Sea in front of them. The natural circumstance was completely overwhelming. The natural circumstance was completely hopeless. And that's, in fact, the title of this message. The God of the Hopeless Situation. You can't get more hopeless than the situation Israel is in at the beginning of Exodus chapter 14. A nation of slaves having just been set free after 430 years, probably have just a handful of crude weapons among them, with an impassable body of water in front of them and the strongest army behind them, there's no way out. There's no way out. What natural circumstance are you looking at right now and in your heart saying, there's no way out. There's no way out. Everything that I see just reinforces in my discouraged, complaining heart that this is hopeless. This is is hopeless. Well, if that's where we find ourselves, either now or from time to time or in the past or at some point in the future, we can identify with where Israel was some 3,500 years ago. They were in a situation that looked absolutely hopeless. But remember what we said at the beginning who were they following? Who led them to this point? Who led them to the edge of the sea? Who hardened the heart of Pharaoh to convince him to come chase them? Who orchestrated all of this? The Lord. So, God doesn't say, hey, this is not a tough situation. God doesn't say, hey, this is an incredibly difficult situation. He doesn't say that. So when he's looking at you and when he's looking at your situation, he doesn't say this is nothing. But what we have to allow him and allow the word of God to remind us of is he is the one who is in control. He is the one (laughs) that led Israel to the shores of the Red Sea. He is the one that hardened Pharaoh's heart so that the armies of Egypt pursued them to the shores of the Red Sea. The Lord is the one. Did Israel understand that everything God was doing? Absolutely not. Did Israel have the complete and total picture of the sovereign purposes of God at that moment? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Will we, at this point, will we on this side of eternity ever completely and totally understand The wisdom and the counsel of God, 100%, absolutely not. We won't. We will never see that clearly this side of eternity. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see in a mirror dimly, but one day we will see face to face. That's the promise that we have. So whatever circumstance you're in, it may not make a lot of sense to you. You may not see the complete plan of the Lord in it, but the one thing that each one of us can do is absolutely trust the sovereignty of God. We can absolutely trust that God is the one that is in control of every circumstance. Every circumstance. He's not the author of evil. He's not wicked. He's not capricious. We can never lay those things at his feet. But he is still in control of everything. Even the kingdom of darkness. He even ultimately has absolute authority over the kingdom of darkness. It's part of his creation. There is God and there is no other. There is no equal. There is no rival. Martin Luther, as he was teaching on this point, he said, The devil is still God's devil. Now, when I first heard that, I was like, well, that sounds really bizarre. But what Luther was saying is what we are emphasizing from Exodus 14. The Lord is still always in control. The Lord is still always in control. I don't fully understand why the Lord gives Satan the freedom that he does. I don't fully understand why the Lord allows Satan to do some of the things that he does. But I do know that the Lord is in absolute control. And I know that on that day of God's choosing, that perfect day of culmination... That Satan will be thrown eternally into the lake of fire. And Satan can do nothing to stop that. That's what I know. So, so much of this life is faith. So much of this life is faith. It's absolutely tenaciously holding on to the Lord, saying, Lord, I trust you. I don't understand everything. And my circumstances at times, even maybe right now, are overwhelming. And if I'm not careful, my circumstances are discouraging and lead me to complain. But Lord, in the midst of this, I want to hold on to you. In the midst of this, I want to trust you. In the midst of this, I want to continue to believe that you are in control. And that has never changed. Help me to believe that. Well, let's pick it up because we all know how it ends. But it's so glorious to read it. So let's pick it up in verse 15. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so that neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made their wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, Let's flee from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people were afraid of the Lord. And put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. What an incredible account. We all know it by heart. As Carl mentioned last week, we've seen probably multiple movie versions of it. And yet every time we read it, what an incredibly powerful, compelling, encouraging story of God's amazing hand of deliverance, what his mighty hand did for his people on the shores and through the middle of the Red Sea. No matter how many times we read it, may it always just enliven and encourage and strengthen our hearts just a couple of things to emphasize you've seen it in the opening verses we read we saw it again in these verses what was the lord up to why did the lord bring this nation of slaves to the shores of the red sea why did he bring the army of egypt behind them to trap them well as we said at the beginning first and foremost he did it to bring glory to himself. He did it to bring glory to himself. We see that in verse four. We see that again in verse 17. It's a repeated theme in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. He did it to bring glory to himself. There's only one who is deserving of glory. There's only one who is deserving of worship. There's only one that is deserving of everything, and that is the Lord God himself. He's not being selfish when he gets glory to himself. He's not being arrogant when he orchestrates circumstance so that all of creation sees that he is glorified in creation. He is simply being in character with the good God that he is. Because anything else that receives glory ultimately is destructive and harmful to us. Anything else that we give glory to, anything else that we allow to take the place of the Lord in our hearts, anything that we begin to give some of our devotion, some of our affection, some of our attention to, in a way that only belongs to the Lord, we will only end up hurting and destroying ourselves and those around us. One of the best, most gracious, most compassionate things that God can do is receive all the glory to himself receive all the glory to himself because as he continues to bring that about in his creation the blessings of god flow over into his creation so one thing that god was doing was bringing glory to himself again we saw it a couple of times we saw it in verse 4 we saw it again in verse 18 As he brings glory to himself, what happens? It says, then Egypt will know that I am the Lord. He brings glory to himself to reveal to creation that he alone is God. What an incredibly significant, essential declaration and truth. The Lord alone is God. There is no other. The world is living in absolute confusion and deception. They are the ones aimlessly wandering around. In part, why? Because they don't acknowledge and they don't understand that the Lord alone is God. You can serve whatever God you want. All gods lead the same way. All paths lead to the same God. All truth is fine as long as it suits you. This is the deception and the confusion. We are not the ones wandering around in confusion. The world is wandering around in confusion. Thinking that there is some multiple choice as to what God you choose. As to what God is real. Whatever God is real for you, that's great. Whatever God works for you, that's great. No. God brings glory to himself. Why? To reveal that he alone is God. There is no other. There is no other. And we have again the privilege of sharing that amazing truth with the world that's lost right now. There isn't any other God. There is only one God. And Jesus made it even more narrow and to the unbelieving world even more offensive. Because he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, if you don't know me, you don't know my Father that will always offend. That will always offend. When we step outside the door of this building and we say, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. That will always offend. But you know what else? That's the only truth that will set people free. If we soften that, if we change that, if we try to skirt around that, we will only contribute to people remaining in bondage. Because the truth that sets people free is offensive to the unbelieving world. And there's no way around that. The truth that sets people free is offensive to the unbelieving world. We can't change that. So again, we simply decide, are we lovingly, humbly going to declare this truth or not? If we don't, Nobody else will. If we don't, nobody else will. So why does God constantly orchestrate events to bring glory to himself? So that the world will know that he alone is God. One other thing that God was up to, we saw it in verse 14, and then the Egyptians declared it in verse 25. The Lord said, I am going to fight for you. Just sit back and watch. I am going to fight for you. And in verse 25, after the Lord looked down from the column of fire, and what are those guys doing down there? Let me turn their chariot wheels sideways. And as soon as he did that, all of a sudden the Egyptian eyes were open and they said, the Lord is fighting for Israel against us. No matter what is going on, you have someone who is fighting for you. You have someone who is fighting for you. He will never stop. He will never stop fighting for you can't and he won't we will make it to the end because he will not give up he will not give up you have someone who is fighting for you every moment of every day jesus lives to make intercession for us The Spirit intercedes with sighs and groanings too deep for words. Jesus stands in the presence of his Father in the company of his brothers. We have one who is advocating for us. We have one who is fighting for us. Praise God. Verse 31, hopefully you saw it. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 31. Verse 10, Israel lifts up their eyes. Verse 31, Israel sees. Verse 10, as Israel lifted up their eyes, what did they see? They saw the armies of Egypt ensnaring them and entrapping them. In verse 31, what did they see? The mighty hand of God. What do you see? Do you see the natural circumstance that's intimidating and overwhelming and discouraging? Well, of course, we have to. But do you see more than that? Do you see beyond that? Do you see the mighty hand of God in the midst of that? Verse 10, Israel was afraid. Verse 31, Israel was afraid. You see how it's exactly the same? Verse 10, Israel looked and saw and they were afraid. Verse 31, Israel looked and saw, and they were afraid. In verse 10, they were afraid of the armies of Egypt. In verse 31, they feared the Lord. They feared the Lord. Listen, as long as we're living on this planet, as long as we're breathing God's air and eating God's food and wearing God's clothes, there are going to be enemies there is going to be opposition. There are going to be overwhelming, natural circumstances. There will be. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus promised that. Not one of our favorite promises that Jesus made us. In this world, you will have trouble. So we see that. Of course we see that. We see that with our natural eyes. We have to navigate that. We have to deal with natural circumstance. But what the scriptures and what the Lord are constantly challenging us to do is to look beyond that. With the eyes of faith to see the hand of the Lord. To see the mighty hand of God. And then we fear Him. And how does this chapter end? As we see the Lord, as we see what he's up to, as we fear him, we trust him. We trust him. And they trusted Moses. They trusted Moses. So as we see what God is up to, as we see what he is doing, we trust the Lord. And we trust the greater Moses. Moses was faithful as a servant in the house of God. Jesus is faithful as a son. In every way, Jesus is the better Moses. As we see the hand of the Lord, as we fear the Lord, we put our trust in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to be together today, to worship you, to take the bread and the cup together. We thank you for being present in our midst. We thank you for what you share with us, how you come to be in our midst. We are so grateful to you for that. Lord, we are grateful for the amazing account that you have left for us. In the opening verses of the book of Exodus. We thank you, Lord, so much for the incredible deliverance that you brought about for your people after so many years of slavery. We thank you that we, like them, can continue to fear you, can continue to trust you, and continue to be absolutely certain that you are God who is in control. Lord, it looked like they were in a completely hopeless circumstance it seemed as if there was no way out well lord even more devastatingly did jesus hanging on a cross look to his followers his body being placed in a tomb how utterly hopeless that looked to everyone who had put their trust in him The cross looked like defeat. The grave and the rolling of the stone to seal the body of Jesus in that tomb, it looked like defeat. It looked like a completely hopeless circumstance. But as we all know, Lord Jesus, on the third day you rose. On the third day you rose. An even greater deliverance than Israel out of bondage, in even greater victory than the Red Sea, was you, Lord Jesus, rising from the dead on the third day. And so, Lord, whatever situations we find ourselves in, and I imagine each one of us here is in some situation that looks hopeless to us. I imagine each one of us doesn't have to look too far to see something that looks completely hopeless to us. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, that ultimately you are in control. That you are in control. And may we see you. May we see your mighty hand. May we trust you and be confident that in the end, you will receive the glory. You will receive the glory. You will make yourself known to all of creation. And until that final revelation every moment of every day, you will fight for us. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. It is in your name and for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen.